Hey, before we pray, I just want to give you a quick encouraging update. Uh, last June, we planted a church by the name of Bridgeway. meets over at Pearson Coal Mine at the auditorium in the Front Range Christian School. For Christmas Eve, they had 250 people show up for their service. They've been averaging 120 per service. And uh, today, Nick is over there preaching. So uh, we weren't quite sure what to think of this. They've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, James and Tom. And um, in Matthew 12, there's this text that's about the unpardonable sin, arguably the hardest text in the whole Bible. And so they asked Nick to come over and preach that today over there at Bridgeway. So uh, <laughs> we weren't quite sure what to think of that. But uh, if your mind wanders today, pray for Nick. Uh, he's probably preaching about right now uh, as, uh, as he's over there at Bridgeway. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> So, Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us, we come to ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us now as we hear your word. We've been saying that this modern family series is painful because who of us does not have wounds and baggage from our childhood, from our family life? Lord, would your Holy Spirit come now and first of all minister to us as we again today pull off scabs and touch wounds deep on our hearts holy spirit be our counselor and our comforter and then lord i want to ask your spirit to come today and just make us extra attentive to those around us, those who are sitting near us and as we leave and go out into the hub, those who we'll encounter. We want to be Your family to one another. And Lord, just help us to see if there's someone hurting who needs a word from us today. Just a word. A handshake and embrace. Please, may our radars be up by Your Spirit that we could be the family to one another that You call us to be. We ask Your Spirit to work in us and through us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. How a book ends is significant. And I want to direct your attention this morning to Malachi chapter 4, the last words of the First Testament. Here they are. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, the prophet Elijah has already come and gone. He's dead and in the grave. What Malachi is prophesying here is John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah and proclaimed Christ, the, the one, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. He comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. After that word destruction, there are 400 years of silence until next we hear the voice of God crying as a baby. But all of those who come to this child, the prophecy is that those will receive healing in their families. Jesus heals families. And we sure need it. I remember years ago, 1994, at a Promise Keepers event, the, the old men's ministry. 
but it wasn't old men's ministry. Yeah. <laughs> the men's ministry promise keepers, James Ryle spoke. He was a pastor in Boulder at the time, and he told his story, and I'll, I'll never forget it. He talked about how when he was two years old, his father walked out on their family. When he was seven years old, his mother walked out on their family, and he was an orphan. When he was 19 years old, James Ryle was in prison. Spent quite a long time there. Got out. Got his life together. Speaking of promise keepers. But several years before, he had run into his father. And they caught up. His father was a welder. And so when James Ryle ran into his father, his father asked him, what prison were you in? And he shared the prison he was in. And then his father said, I built that prison. I was the chief welder on that site. And I'll never forget James Ryle's line that he lived most of his life in a prison built by his father. Reminds me of an interview that I read several years ago where the Christian musician Michael Card was interviewing the great writer Brennan Manning, the late Brennan Manning. Michael asked Brennan, what were some of the most powerful experiences of prayer you've had in your ministry? Without hesitation, Brennan Manning shared this first one. He said that one time after a talk, a nun came forward to speak with him. Her name was Sister Mary Genevieve. And she was weeping and broken. And she immediately started to pour out her heart to Brennan. She said that uh, when she was five years old, her father sexually abused her. When she was nine years old, she lost her virginity. When she was 12 years old, she had performed every uh, perverted sex act in a book, that, a dirty book, to use her word, that was left around the house. She came, she felt so filthy, she was full of hatred for her father and even more hatred for herself. She said and shared with Brennan that she uh, only took communion when she had to, when the sisters in the nunnery demanded that she take communion because it felt so uncomfortable to her to be so close to a man, Jesus. She too lived in a prison built by her father. My question this morning is how does Jesus heal families? I'd like to talk first about a commandment where we learn the purpose of family. Secondly, I'd like to talk about a proverb where we learn the plan for family. And thirdly, I'd like to talk about a prayer of Jesus where we learn and gain the power for family. And learning the purpose, plan, and power for family, I believe, is a way in for the healing of Jesus to begin to work healing in our families. Let's start with the command. In fact, you know, honoring is the theme of the day, honoring our parents. Let's honor our parent, our father. Would you stand as we read his word, the fifth commandment, together? I don't know, I'm just craving reverence today. Would you join me and read this aloud? Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. The word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you. So first a word about the Ten Commandments. You'll remember they came on the back edge of of uh, the, the Lord God rescuing Israel out of Egypt through all the plagues and then through the great crossing of the Red Sea, the exodus out of Egypt, where God shows who He is and what He has done. He's chosen a people and provided everything for their salvation. So these Ten Commandments come as fruit of that. 
In other words, these commandments are the redeemed lifestyle on display. God has already chosen the people and saved them, and now He wants them to live. So in a sense, these commandments are not conditions of relationship. They already have relationship. These commandments are conceptions of relationship. Here's what God's people look like. You'll remember that there's ten. The first four are about our relationship with the Lord vertically. The, the last six are about our human relationships with every other person. But the first human relationship is the fifth commandment where we read, honor your father and your mother. I want to talk about the purpose of honoring your father and mother. It's in that phrase, so that you may live long in the land The Lord your God is giving you. Now sometimes we're tempted to read that as an individual promise and say, well, if I'm an obedient child, I'll live till I'm 80. If I'm a disobedient child, I'll die before my time. That's not what that commandment means. Nor is that the promise. The promise is that if there's honor between the generations, then families will be strong. And then strong families are the bedrock of a society. The stronger the families, the longer they'll be able to maintain their society and stay in the land. This is a corporate observation that God's making. In other words, the moral universe is hardwired such that the DNA of society is strong families. How does that work? Well, quickly, I don't want to take too much time unpacking that, but if you think about what family does for children, the first thing is that a a loving and nurturing family provides self-identity for the child, right? Uh, pouring into your children, you fill up some of those, you know, holes in their souls and they come out knowing who they are, why they're here, well adjusted and ready to roll in society. It's in a family, a healthy family, that a child is loved, nurtured and gains self-respect. That's the first part of what a family does. But at the same time, what's going on, not only are you building into the child, but you're also gently disciplining the child and providing structure so that the child learns what we might affectionately call socialized behavior, which really means sharing and understanding that, you know, the world does not revolve around you. You learn that in the family. In a family, a child learns that Sometimes they have to submit their self-interests for the goals of the larger family and for the goals of society. So a, a child in a family gains identity and socialized behavior. And that's why strong families are essential to longevity for societies. That's how it works. That's the purpose of family and the purpose of the command to honor. Now, People all over the world are continually bumping into the DNA of the moral universe, how God's hardwired it. One of them was a great TED Talk I heard last week by a gal named Angela Patton. And she runs Camp Diva. And Camp Diva is a, is a minister, an organization, I, I'm not sure if it's Christian or not, but it, 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 it ministers to African-American girls in the inner city and teaches them how to grow up and be contributing members to society. And what Angela Patton has discovered, that what's core to that is connecting young African-American girls to their fathers when that's possible. She has all over the East Coast what are called father-daughter dances. And she says, and this is a great line in this TED Talk, uh, it's it's called Father-Daughter Dance, Angela Patton. She says that that's so important because what a father is to a daughter is a mirror. And when a daughter looks into her father's eyes, 
she sees what kind of man she deserves. It's powerful. What she began to bump into, though, was that many of the girls in Camp Diva, their dads were in prison. And so she called up the sheriff of Richmond County, Virginia, and said, can we have a father-daughter dance in your jail? Without hesitation, the sheriff said, yes, and we'll even provide the food. Angela's not too sure about that, but... The warden of the prison said, we are there, we'll give you everything you need because here's what's true. If a man is more deeply connected to his family, it is less likely that we will see him back here. Honor in a family, generational, produces strong families. Strong families produces longevity for societies. That's the purpose of family. But the question is, where does that longevity come from? That's where we get into the plan for the family. Now, if you read the Proverbs, what you see in the Proverbs is that they are the snapshot pictures of what it looks like to live out the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are pictured in the Proverbs, and so I'd like to take a snapshot picture of what the Fifth Commandment looks like. Could again, to honor our Father, could I ask you to stand as we read His words today? Here's what the Fifth Commandment looks like when we live it out. Would you read with me? Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Wisdom, instruction, and insight as well. The father of a righteous child has great joy. A man who fathers a wise son rejoices in him. May your father and mother rejoice. May she who gave you birth be joyful. Good picture, isn't it? Good picture of what the fifth commandment looks like. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. I want to emphasize two things that come out of this picture of the fifth commandment in action. We see, first of all, that it's a lifelong commitment or covenant. And that lifelong commitment, it says from you know the birth, from birth the, the father is teaching his child, and then when the child's uh, grown up and the mother's old there's still honor between the generations so honoring your parents is a lifetime commitment it's how honor makes families stronger to make societies longer there's two parts to being this plan that to, to get to proverbs 23 the first is it's a lifelong community that kind of pushes against you know two kinds of culture there is the kind of culture that says well what makes a family blood Blood makes a family. If you're related by blood, that's all a family is, is blood relations. You know, a, a child is uh, economically uh, priceless, but emotionally useless. You, there's no sense of nurturing or love. And it's interesting, in cultures where it's just blood that makes family, they have no concept of adoption, and that's why other cultures from around the world are adopting their children. There's just only the blood. It's all about, parenting is about control and raising a child to meet the needs of the family. That is all blood. Uh, on NPR last week, I heard a, a piece where they did a piece on an election in Amman, Jordan. And Amman, Jordan, the, sometimes, some of the Muslim cultures are very blood-oriented cultures. And they were interviewing this guy who had, they asked him who he was going to vote for. And he said, well, it's not even a question. It doesn't matter what the c- candidates believe in, what their politics are. If my uncle's running, I vote for my uncle. Blood is what makes family. But the other side of that spectrum is more where our culture camps, and that is what makes a family in our culture is just consenting adults who decide to love each other. Consenting adults. 
arranging any situation, and as long as we're happy and as long as we love each other, we'll make a lease, we'll stay together. Blood or lease, the Bible goes deeper. The Bible says that what makes a family begins with a covenant that we call marriage. And marriage is an exclusive, permanent, binding commitment between a husband and a wife who, uh, and let me just put it in the best terms I know how, are stuck together, come hell or high water. You know, uh, let's put it better. They, they rest in each other. <laughs> but they are in it for the long haul. And then under the shelter of this marriage covenant, covenant comes the offspring, the kids. And the kids live in the shelter and shade and production of that marriage covenant. Now, first of all, we know that sometimes, oftentimes, those marriage covenants don't make it. But what happens is when covenant one breaks down, covenant 1A, those kids, connected by blood and still commitment from the, the first marriage, there is still loyalty there because it is a lifelong commitment. Can I just say a word of blessing and praise upon the hardest working people in our congregation? That would be single parents. Single parents who, though their marriage has not made it, they are still lifelong committed to their children. Striving, fighting, working to invest and raise their child. We honor you in this family today. Single parents. What's interesting is how the the covenants of marriage and parenting you know, one under the shelter of the other, but they kind of work in opposite directions, right? Your marriage covenant, the two individuals, binding, permanent, exclusive commitment, they're supposed to be moving closer and closer together such that when you've been married 50 years old, you can finish each other's sentences, right? That's how it's supposed to work. Interdependence. But the purpose of the parent covenant is to move apart, right? It's to raise that child so they reach a place of critical freedom where they no longer need your authority and constant presence in their life. In other words, if you parent well, you end in heartbreak. Right? They leave you. There's no better description of empty nest than what Wendell Berry writes in his novel, Hannah Coulter. And I just wanted to share this briefly with you to honor those of us who are, what shall we say, grieving the empty nest. To be the mother of a grown-up child means that you don't have a child anymore. And that is sad. When the grown-up child leaves home, that is sadder. I wanted Margaret to go to college, but when she actually went away, it broke my heart. Maybe if you have enough children, you could get used to those departures, but having only three, I never did. I felt them like amputations. Something I needed was missing sometimes even now when I come into this house and it sounds empty. Before I think, I will wonder, where are they? When they leave, I am sad to see them go and I am sad that it should seem right that they should be gone. You do a good job of parenting, they break your heart. That's the goal. Lifelong commitment, loyalty. 
But there's a second part of that parent covenant. It's not just to be lifelong from your birth to their death. It also is about to be a learning community. If you go back to the Proverbs 23 passage, it spells out pretty clearly the job of parenting. The job of parenting, it says, is to buy truth, buy knowledge, uh, insight, understanding, wisdom, so that the child you produce is one uh, righteous, it says. That means they have a moral operating system and wise. They're equipped with skills for life. The job of a parent is to produce a child who's righteous and wise. Now that, again, kind of pushes against different cultures around the world. Again, in some of the cultures around the world where it's a parent-driven culture, the, the purpose of a child is to support the family, and parenting is all about control and ownership. A child is economically worthwhile and emotionally useless. There are cultures like that where it's just the children are owned and controlled by the parent. There's no outside input. Uh, they're just a commodity. There are other cultures like ours where we pretty much live in a child-driven culture. Helicopter parents, you know, we uh, do anything and everything we can to make our children happy. It's been interesting. There's been some literature coming out lately uh, that are pushing back against this. Uh, If you set happiness as your highest goal, if your main job with your children, you say, is just to nurture them, provide for them, keep an emotionally warm environment, you know, kind of back off on imposing authority on them or imposing your will or values on them. Just let them be and they'll come to those things themselves, which, by the way, is a worldview that you're imposing on them. But we won't talk about that now. What I'm suggesting is that there's higher goals in your parenting than your child's happiness. Nick's going to spell that out. He was supposed to do it last week. We had a snow day. Nick's going to preach on parenting on Palm Sunday. Be here because he will absolutely answer every question about parenting and make us all good parents. Come back on Palm Sunday. My point at this juncture is what I want to say is that the Bible goes deeper than both a parent-driven culture and a child-driven culture. The Bible says that what you do as parents is to equip your child with a worldview that gives them something to live for and something to die for. What's interesting is even some of the, the, the um, literature and research that's coming out today uh, is pushing back against happiness being the highest goal of an American childhood. There's a great book out there right now by Jennifer Senior. Actually, she was just at the Tattered Cover last Thursday and, and, and spoke. Her book is called All Joy and No Fun. I recommend it just because the title alone sums it up. <laughs> Parenting, All Joy and No Fun. She's not a Christian. She's an agnostic. But she is really pushing back a little bit against this idea of the goal of American childhood is happiness. First of all, I just wanted to encourage the mothers and fathers of toddlers in the house this morning by one of the great quotes that she opens up with her research. In 1971, a trio from Harvard observed 90 mother-toddler pairs for five hours and found that, on average, mothers gave a command, told their child no, or fielded a request often unreasonable or in a whining tone, every three minutes. (laughs) Their children, in turn, obeyed on average only 60% of the time. This is not exactly a formula for perfect mental health. Can we give a round of applause to mothers of toddlers and fathers of toddlers in the room? Hang in there. It gets better. All right? But here's the quote I really wanted to get to. I just wanted to encourage... The young parents this morning, she pushes back here. Listen, raising happy children 
is an elusive aim compared to the more concrete aims of parenting in the past, creating competent children in certain kinds of work and creating moral responsible, morally responsible citizens who fulfill a prescribed set of community obligations. Sounds very much like the Proverbs, right? The fact is those bygone goals are probably more constructive and achievable. Not all children will grow up to be happy in spite of their parents' most valiant efforts, and all children are unhappy somewhere along the way. So, the plan for family is for parents to lifelong be committed to a learning environment for their children. The one button that gets pushed here that's hard is what happens when your child grows up and decides to push away the values that you've tried to instill. That is a hard scenario. That's a hard scenario. What I want to say about it, just a few thoughts. And Nick will pick up more on this, I'm sure, when he gets to the parenting talk. But first of all, I want to say that as parents, we are held to the process of parenting, not the product of parenting. The product of parenting is decided by your adult child who is now responsible for their life. It's a very hard line to draw. It's also a very hard line to live. But parents, your job is to teach your children your values, a worldview, what's worth living for, what's worth dying for. You're to help them have skills for life. You do that. Your children go. They make their choices. They're responsible for those choices. Your children will lose respect for you if you don't teach them what you believe, what your moral compass is. They will lose respect for you if you don't live what you say your moral compass is and your values are. Even though they may choose something different, they will still honor you if you have strived to live and teach your worldview and your values to your children. That's the goal. You're responsible for process. The children are responsible for the product that they are. For parents here this morning whose child's children are making different choices, I just want to share with you two things that have helped me. The first is my life verse is Ecclesiastes 9.4. Better to be a sick dog than a dead lion. While your child is alive, there's hope. And don't you quit. Don't you quit. There is always hope. And the second, I have learned to live in Luke chapter 15, which is the parable of the prodigal son. I have to be the father that's standing on the hill waiting for his sons to come home. What I'm suggesting to you is that always fight and value, fight for and value relationship. Your child, because of the choices they're making, may need to live in the pigsty for a while. And those are the hard choices. How much pig do you let them eat? But you never 
ever give up on relationship. And you wait for them and you pray for them and you wait for them to come home and any time you see them, you throw yourself on their neck and you kiss them. Value relationship over being right. It's the plan for family. But where do we get that motivation? How do we honor our parents? Let's go back to the adult world for just a minute. This is the power. The the command says, honor your father and mother so that they may have long life in the land. Honor there is an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word kavod. Kavod means weight or uh, respect for a position. It means to, to look at someone and because of who they are, you make room for them in your life. To honor your parents means that you hold them as significant enough to make room for them in your life. I find it an interesting word choice, don't you? It doesn't say obey your parents in the fifth commandment. Why? Because you'll reach a point where you really you don't obey your parents anymore. You're a grown adult. It doesn't say love your parents because some of us have had parents who've mistreated us, who haven't been there for us, and a loving relationship is not possible. But listen, it says honor your parents. That is a moral, non-emotional choice that you make. And you make room for them in your life no matter what. So for some of us who have had bad parents, honor may look like you just praying for them. Every day. Praying for them. It starts there. You make room for them in your life. And it may just be praying because relationship might not be possible. But you pray for them. You you honor the God behind this DNA who set it up this way. You honor your parents by making room. And minimally, that's prayer. On the other side, for many of us, that's probably more, much more about spending time, making trips. You know, we like to say around Waterstone, ministry, half of it's showing up. It's family, half of it's showing up. It's the ministry of presence. Just being together. You make it happen. You get together. It's about food. It's about fun. It's about having your parents, especially as they get older and, you know, that rich senior citizen wisdom. It's just about extracting that, listening to that, being around them. And ultimately, honoring your parents. And some of you are right here. Honoring your parents is about helping them die a good death. In between, there's story. When's the last time you told your mom or your dad a story about how they did something that really turned the river of your life? Have you honored them lately with a story? You know what? It's really good if you write those stories down and send them to your parents. I guarantee you they'll end up on their wall somewhere. Storytelling. Make it part of honoring your parents or how about just the idea of a written word do you know how powerful letters are 
When's the last time you wrote a letter to your parents? You know the best way you can honor your family, your parents, honor your parents, is to grow up. You know, as we are children and as we get into adulthood, we begin to look back and we say that what we really needed from our parents is unconditional love and full acceptance balanced with, you know, gentle discipline so that we didn't do self-destructive stuff. Unconditional love, discipline, so that we didn't become self-destructive. Do you know what? No human parent can do that for you. There is no perfect parent who can love you unconditionally all the time and at the same time and with all wisdom give you the discipline that you need. There is no parent that can do that. And yet we come into adulthood with all these deficits thinking, man, my parents, they didn't show up for me. They did not love me properly. Well, no human parent can love you properly. So what do you do? You need to grow How do you grow up? You listen to Jesus pray for you. And here's the power of family. Here's the prayer. We'll put it up on the screen, John 17. I'm going to just paraphrase it for you right now. Jesus, on the last night of His life, was praying for all of us. And His prayer was this, Father, I'm the only one down here who's your natural-born son. We share the same substance. I'm the only true son. But Father, I want You to adopt everyone here that I see. I want You to love them with the love with which You love Me. Adopt them. And adopt them. And adopt them. And adopt them. And bring all of those into the family that we are so that they can have us as all family and that they can have You as the Father. And when you receive that love, that is perfect parent love. And having that love, that perfect parent love, enables you to turn around to your parents and honor them. In fact, you will not be able to honor your parents fully until you've received the perfect parent love from the Heavenly Father who fills up all our deficits. Until you have that love, you cannot honor fully. You'll, if you had good parents and you don't have this love fully sitting in your heart, you'll idolize them and you'll crave their approval. If you had bad parents, you will just sit around in bitterness, moaning, complaining, ugliness about what you never got as a child. And until you can receive the perfect parent love of the Father, through Jesus Christ, believing on His name, we become sons and daughters of the Father. Receiving that love is when we can turn around to our parents and say, you used to be God to me. And you, you, you did. I mean, you, God has designed it that we raise children and parents are responsible for them when they're little. But, you know, you're not God to me anymore. I do not need your approval to live my life. I'm not going to be bitter for the love that for whatever reason you weren't able to give me because I have perfect parent love now in my heart and I don't need you anymore. 
until you have that love, you will not be able to honor your parents. And listen, until you are able to honor your parents, you will not be free. So have you come to that place? Man, I look around and see some of us still being driven around by the parents they had or the parents they didn't have. I see some of us making decisions even about sexual activity and brokenness because we're still trying to get that approval and that love. Until your heart is like broken with the wonder that Jesus connects us to His Father and we have that love in our lives until your heart is just captured by that, you will not be able to honor your parents as you need to do. Uh, I never finished the Brennan Manning story about Sister Mary Genevieve. Here's how it finished. She'd come down. She was weeping. She shared her heart. So this is what Brenning Manning shared with Sister Genevieve. I prayed with Sister Genevieve for several minutes for healing. And then I asked her, Sister, would you be willing for the next month to go to a quiet place every morning, sit down in a chair, close your eyes, and pray this prayer over and over? Abba, I belong to you. Pray this until it becomes a heartfelt cry in the depth of your being. Until it establishes the beginning of each of your days, who you are, why you're here, where you're going. It's a prayer that you can pray walking across the street, driving your car, watching television, eating a meal, sitting in church. And when you do this, literally dozens and dozens of time a day, you can, as Jesus says in Luke 18, pray all day long and never lose heart. Brendan says, well, I asked the nun if she would try it, and she said yes. And she promised to sit and pray, Abba, I belong to you. Two weeks later, I received the most moving and poetic letter I've ever gotten in the ministry, Brennan says. This old woman described the inner healing of her heart the complete forgiveness of her father, an inner peace she had never known before. And she ended her letter this way. A year ago, I would have signed this letter with my real name in religious life, Sister Mary Genevieve. But from now on, I'm just Abba's little girl. John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received Jesus, to those who believed on His name, to them He gave the power to become the sons and daughters of God. My friends at Waterstone, some of you right now need to come home. You need to come to your Heavenly Father. You need to sit here for just a moment of silence that we're going to give you. And say and pray, Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. Would you just take a few moments?
Give your heart to the Father. Come home and pray, Abba, I belong to you.